John chapter 3, and we're going to look at the man who came to Jesus by night. But as you know, I have, uh, I have a goal, and those of us here as leaders of the church have a goal, to not only share with you information in the Gospel of John the next few weeks that, that deal with stuff that you already know, and I want you to look at it this way. Don't look at it as stuff that you already know. Look at it as, as ways that you can share this with others. That's a, that's a bigger challenge, isn't it? I don't want you to say, oh, I, I'm not paying much attention to that because I already know everything there is to know about Nicodemus. I want you to say, well, is there, is there something in here that I can learn that will help me share the gospel with others? All right? Now, you know that I've had, a, uh, I've had a passion for teenagers for all my life and uh, worked with Teen Quest before I even came here as pastor. And, and one of my favorite uh, teen Bibles is uh, the Teen Life Application Study Bible. And I like the Teen Application Life Study Bible because it's serious. It's a Bible that teaches us to be serious about sharing our faith. And right in the beginning, so any teen that has this particular Bible is going to get a lot of information on how to share your faith. And I just want to, for you adults, to mention a couple of things that are referred to as far as sharing your faith with others. Number one, the first thing to remember when you start to talk to others about Jesus is that there is no one-size-fits-all method that will guarantee success every time. There isn't. There isn't. The amazing thing about Jesus is he didn't use the same approach with every single person he talked to. Next week, uh, Pastor Zach is going to be dealing with the chapter 4 and the woman at the well of Samaria. And uh, Jesus' approach with her is different than Jesus' approach with Nicodemus. Now, it doesn't mean that we aren't to know that all have sinned and come fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23. It doesn't, we need to know the basics. But your conversation, many times when you're sharing the gospel, is going to go in a direction that you never expected it to go in. And uh, don't be caught off guard by that. So, and then they say something that's very interesting here. Also keep in mind that no one, not even the most experienced minister, is successful 100% of the time when sharing the gospel. I could tell you story after story after story where I've walked away and have said to myself, oh, I wish I'd have said this, or I wish I'd have said that, or boy, it'd have been nice if we could have gotten into this. Seize the moment. Always be on the lookout for opportunities to talk about Jesus. Know your stuff. Don't be caught off guard when a faith-sharing opportunity arises. Ask questions and listen to answers. Tell them your personal testimony. Tell them your story and be humble about it all. Well, here's one just very short story. Kenneth has something to say. And one thing I like about this particular Bible is... There are little stories from teenagers. It's hard for me to talk to people about God, says Kenneth. You know, I, I have memorized a lot of verses. I'm still working on my way through the Bible. It's easy to tell myself that I can wait until I know more. But when I read Acts 4.13, I realized I was kidding myself. 
The verse talks about the boldness of Peter and John and says that the Jewish council noticed that they were uneducated and non-professionals, but they knew Jesus. In other words, a person doesn't have to know the whole Bible or go to seminary to be able to share the faith. The main thing is to know Jesus and share what I know with other people. I'm finding that he gives me the boldness to open my mouth if I ask him. So ask yourself the question, how would I handle a Nicodemus? In the remaining time that we have, let's take a look briefly at Nicodemus. The Bible says in chapter 3, verse 1, that he was a Pharisee, and number 2, a what? A ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee, and he was a ruler of the Jews. Now, just for your information, Nicodemus is mentioned two other times in the book of John. And I won't get into those today, but he's mentioned in the 7th chapter, verse 50, if you want to write it down and think about that one and look at it. And he's mentioned in chapter 19, verse 39. And by the time we get to the end of John, it looks like Nicodemus is saved. All right? We don't know what happened in chapter 3, verse 1. There's obviously a process going on. But by 19, it looks like he knows the Lord. And uh, so keep that in mind. Now, he was a Pharisee and he was a ruler of the Jews. So if he was a ruler of the Jews, that means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin or Hedron. And a member of the Sanhedrin or Hedron meant that he was a part of the ruling body, not just civic, but religious ruling body of the Jewish people in the time of the New Testament. Yes, they were under the governorship of uh, Rome. Yes, they were under the emperor of Rome. But they were allowed to have their own ruling government with limitations. And you know that a big part of that was being a religious leader. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus even addresses that and says, well, you being a religious leader, how can you not know the stuff that I'm talking about? But anyway, what was his lifestyle like? Well, if he was a Pharisee, then we know that he really lived his life in an impeccable way. If he was a Pharisee, he went to church every Sunday. If he was a Pharisee, he gave his tithes and his offerings to the, uh, the, the church of that day, the synagogue. In the temple. If he was a Pharisee, he tried to obey the Ten Commandments in every possible way he could. And I'll tell you, you know, a Pharisee often, because he didn't want to mess up on anything that he did, and oftentimes a Pharisee get pretty proud about it and say, wow. Remember the two people who go to the temple, one's a Pharisee and one's a sinner? And the Pharisee says, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. He doesn't, I mean, he's just a dirt ball. And uh, here's, look at me, I'm, I'm doing everything exactly the way the Lord wants me to do it. And uh, Jesus told this parable, and he said, the dirt ball over there just raises his hand to heaven and says, Lord, I know what I am. I know I'm a scumbag. scumbag. I know that I'm worthless. I know that I just, I'm in need, but see, the point is I'm in need of your grace and your mercy to save me. And then Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, which one, which one do you think left the temple saved? See, Pharisees, it wasn't that they were doing the wrong things, 
but they're doing the wrong, they were doing the right things for the wrong reasons. You see, because the Pharisees were externalizing everything. If I just did exactly what God asked me to do, it didn't matter whether my heart was in it or not. Hopefully it would be. But it didn't matter whether I could internalize my faith. None of that really mattered. It was a work salvation for the most part. Let me give you three quick illustrations of that. It was so, it, it could be so legalistic that one of the rules was that women, you were not supposed to use a mirror on the Sabbath day because there was the fear that you would see a gray hair and you'd want to pull it out. Seriously. Isn't that ridiculous? Number two, let me give you another one. If a chicken laid an egg on the Sabbath day, you were allowed to eat that egg, but you had to promise that you'd kill the chicken for laying it on the Sabbath day. Um, you could get up in the morning before you went to church, and you could use vinegar to clear your throat, but don't dare gargle with it. I'm, I'm making these up. You see what I'm saying? So you see, it was an externalized faith. And I'm not saying that any of those things are necessarily wrong in and of themselves, you see, but the motives behind them and the fact that they could even do the right thing but do it for the wrong reasons was why it was important for Jesus to address Nicodemus. And so the Bible says this man came to Jesus by night. We don't know why. We don't know if he did it because he feared the other Jews. We don't know if he did it because his day was so full of stuff. He didn't have time to see anybody else but in the evening. We don't know exactly. We, we suspect that it was out of fear. He didn't want his religious colleagues to see him talking to Jesus. We assume that to be, be the thing. But notice what he says to Jesus in verse 2. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Is he right? Yes, he's right. Already he's head of the game. Remember we said that John is a book that does two things for us. Number one, John is a book that's going to help you to address all of the critics and the skeptics that you're going to be dealing with because John is a book that's going to prove to you and prove to them who Jesus is. Remember that? That's one of the reasons for the book. The second reason for the book is to give us great illustration, is for us to actually believe in the Lord ourselves. You see? So the thing is, Nicodemus had it right. He understood that Jesus was a teacher. And not only a teacher, but a teacher come from God. And he understood that was true because of the signs that Jesus did. Now, for those of you who like to study God's Word haphazardly, most of you will read the second chapter of John, and you'll notice that Jesus turns the water into wine, and the Bible says that this is the first miracle that Jesus performed, the first sign that Jesus performed in that area. And I add that because when we get to chapter 5, he's going to say he performed another sign, the second sign he performed. Now, I'm just bringing it to your attention. I'm just giving a quick example. You have critics everywhere who'll try to take every word of Scripture and pull it apart. 
And here's Nicodemus then, and sandwiched in between those two chapters, where he says, you're doing signs, plural. When John only mentioned one, the marriage feast of the, I mean, the, uh, the marriage feast where he turns the water into wine. But immediately, that's in the region of Galilee. Notice what it says in verse 23, right before John chapter 3. And a lot of people will miss it in order to be a critic. But don't miss it. Don't miss it. You may have to answer it. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the what? Signs which he did. So here's Jesus doing signs in Judea. And then, of course, John references the first sign and the second sign that he performs in his ministry starting from Cana of Galilee. But anyway, that's a little bit of a sidelight. But don't, find, don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. You may find yourself in a position where you'll be stalled for a second or two because somebody's going to try to twist Scripture and say, you know what, it's a contradiction. So know your stuff. Know your stuff. So Nicodemus has it right. Jesus is not a false teacher. He is a true teacher come from God. And so the only thing left in his, in, in, in his life is for him to respond to the truth of the gospel and to believe in Christ. That's the next step. Now, I want you to do two, two quick things for me here, because since we're going to go through the book of John, we're going to, we're going to end up with uh, chapter 21, but chapter 20 gives to us the reason why he wrote this book. Now, we've already mentioned it to you. I want you to keep this in mind. In John chapter 20, at the end of the gospel, the Bible tells us that in verse 30, truly Jesus did what? Many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But everybody together now. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now I want you to turn very quickly over to 1 John near the end of the New Testament. John not only wrote the gospel, he wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then he wrote the book of Revelation. But in 1 John, at the end of his book, he also gives to us the reason why he wrote the book. I want you to notice the difference in chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. I want you to notice the difference. In John chapter 5, verse 13, and these books weren't written too far apart from each other, but notice what he says here. The similarities are there clearly for us to see, but what's the major difference? These things, everybody together in verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You know what it's like to have your faith stretched. You know what it's like to have your faith um, uh, uh, to the point where it's wavering and you're trying to figure out whether or not you're really believing the right thing or not. You know what it is. But I want you to know that John has the basis covered from the gospel all the way to 1 John chapter 5. All right, now having said that, what happens here? 
what happens here? Well, in verse 3, we see Jesus saying to Nicodemus, he says, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now notice, he's already, already been told that I, I believe you are a true prophet, you're a true teacher. I already believe that. I don't need you to identify. And so Jesus doesn't deal with that. Jesus doesn't say, well, okay, let me identify myself. You'll remember the struggles that the disciples had in chapter 1. Uh, trying to figure out who Jesus was. Is he the Messiah? Is that prophet of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 18? Is he Elijah? Is he the Christ? Is he Jesus, the son of Joseph? Who, who is he? They struggled and struggled and struggled and struggled, but that's not the struggle for Nicodemus. So Jesus goes directly to Nicodemus's heart. He knows exactly what's on Nicodemus's mind. He knows what's probably on Nicodemus' mind nine times out of ten of all the issues that pop into his head during the day. Don't forget, Israel is under the Roman Empire, and Israel doesn't want to be there. Israel wants to be a sovereign nation under the leadership of the Messiah. But the Messiah hadn't come yet. But that doesn't mean the people of Israel aren't thinking about it. They're thinking about it all the time. But notice what Jesus does. He goes right to the issue and he says to Nicodemus, he says, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I already have the impression that Nicodemus isn't ready for the kingdom of God. Don't you have that impression? Without reading anything else, Nicodemus is not ready for the kingdom of God. But let me give you some idea of what, Jesus, what Nicodemus probably already knows about the kingdom of God. All right? Let me suggest to you, and I, and I pulled these, these aren't mine, these are out of uh, John MacArthur's Bible Handbook, but they're in other resources that uh, have been published as well. But he probably already knows, number one, that the Lord will restore the faithful remnant of Israel to the land to inhabit the kingdom at its beginning. He probably knows all of that. And he should know all of that because the passages of Scripture are or, or the length is very long. Number two, he should already know that the Lord defeats Israel's enemies and he will provide protection for his people. He already should know that. He should already know that in the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of God, Israel will enjoy great prosperity of many kinds. And the, Bible, the book of Isaiah alone is just filled with those. Number four, and why am I reading these to you? Am I reading these to you because I want you to know what happened 2,000 years ago? Every single one of these things that I'm mentioning to you today are true for us. See, because Israel has to share the kingdom of God with the Gentiles. <laughs> so the kingdom of God is coming, and it's not just the Jewish people 
It's not just the, you know what cleared it up for me? You know, there's a lot of people who take different, different attitudes about eschatology. But I remember when I was in, in college and I had a course in uh, New Testament uh, prophetic literature. We went through the book of Revelation. And when in the book of Revelation, early on, we have this scene in heaven. And when we get to the scene in heaven, we see that here, here's a picture of God in his kingdom. And it hasn't, he hasn't brought it down to earth yet. But we have 24 elders. And I'm saying to myself, what's with that? Why are there 24 elders together in the kingdom, in the heavenly throne? Twelve tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. That cleared up, <laughs> that cleared up enormous amount of questions that I had when I saw how consistent the Bible is, that God has a kingdom coming. He obviously has offered it to, the Israel, to Israel first. We know the Messiah is coming through Israel. Jesus is the Messiah. The is, Israel has to share the kingdom with the Gentiles. That's us. We know that. And he should have known that as well. Number four, the city of Jerusalem will rise to world prominence in the kingdom. Number five, Israel will be the center of world attention in the kingdom. Number six, Gentiles in the kingdom will receive blessing through the channel of faithful Israel. Number eight, worldwide peace will prevail in the kingdom under the rule of the Prince of Peace. Number nine, moral and spiritual conditions in the kingdom will reach their highest plane since the fall of Adam. Number 10, governmental leadership in the kingdom will, well, every nation will be accountable to the Messiah. Number 11, humans will enjoy long life in the kingdom. Number 12, knowledge of the Lord will be universal in the kingdom. Number 13, the world of nature will enjoy a great renewal in the kingdom as God lifts the curse. Wild animals will be tame in the kingdom, 14. Sorrow and mourning will not exist in the kingdom, 15. And an eternal kingdom, and, and, and eternal kingdom as a part of God's new creation will follow the millennial kingdom itself. The king will judge overt sin in the kingdom. And you can then understand why many, many, if not every Israelite who really had a spiritual bone in their bodies we're not thinking all the time about these promises that God gave to them. What Nicodemus did not know, what Nicodemus did not know probably was if it was going to happen in his lifetime. And he may have been unclear about Resurrection Day and the fact that on Resurrection Day, those who have gone to be with the Lord will be included as Jesus brings them back and we all enter the physical reign of Christ in the kingdom of God here on earth. Okay, so that's what he should have known. And, 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 and uh, well, I'm, I'm going to skip some illustrations to that effect. But he doesn't understand it, you see. He doesn't understand it. In verse, he doesn't know how to get there. He doesn't know what he needs to do. The Bible says, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This is earthly talk if I ever heard it. 
And you know it happened back in chapter 2. And it's going to happen again in chapter 4 and chapter 6 and all through the Gospel of John. People are going to respond to Jesus' very, very spiritual statements. They're literal, but they're spiritual because they need to be understood because God has given us the Holy Spirit to help us to understand them. But people are going to respond to them in a negative, negative way. Isn't it kind of ridiculous, Nicodemus, to say to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time when his mother woman be born? And Jesus' response, and now you're, you're listening because you want to know how to respond to people when you have this same kind of a problem, right? Yeah. Jesus answered in verse 5, and he said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse 6, that which is born of the water, I'm sorry, that which is born of the flesh, you see, because if I follow his logic here, Nicodemus isn't understanding. So he's going back and he's looking at natural birth and he's saying, how can a person be put back into the womb and be born again? As if that's going to make any difference and a person will be saved once that happens. (laughs) No. Yes, you and I would look at that and say it's ridiculous, but when I follow his thinking here, and what, I want, what I'm hoping will happen here is most of us get intimidated when we look at that word in verse 5 where Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And one of the reasons why is because we look at the references that are given to us in John chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and following of baptism by water. But i got to tell you right off the bat, if you're talking to anybody about this, one of the things you want to do is say, that's, that's what Jesus wants us to avoid. His focus is not on water. That's the point he's making. His focus is not on water. His focus is on the second word. Now, for those of you who are struggling with this, I just want you to understand that in the book of John... In the very, 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 very first chapter, already in verse 34, uh, is it John chapter 1, verse 34? Uh, 33. I, I, John is talking about baptism here, and in verse 33, he already refers to water as the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? By the time we get to verse chapter 4, by the time we get to chapter 7, clearly, clearly water represents not just, not physical water, but the Holy Spirit. I just want you to be aware of that so you don't get caught into discussions where people try to say, say well, I want to focus on the the water, because the water has to refer to baptism, doesn't it? And say, no, no, it does not have to refer to baptism. It can refer to the Holy Spirit. What, what is one reason why you would want to do that? What is Jesus doing here? He is trying to, he's, he wants Nicodemus to understand that you cannot be saved by the externals of your faith. That's the point. You cannot be saved by the externals of your faith. I'm not minimizing the baptism. Baptism is a symbol of our new life in Christ, and that's important. But I want to minimize it here, and I need to minimize it here, because if I take the bait, 
and I, and, I, and, I, and I get involved in a discussion on water baptism, I'm going to encourage the very thing that the Lord is discouraging. Your faith cannot be internalized, external. It, your faith has to be internalized. That's the point. So we can talk about that another time, but let's talk about what Jesus says here. Jesus says it's not enough for you to go to church. It's not enough for you to give. It's not enough for you to be... By the way, this is John's baptism. This isn't Jesus' baptism anyway. That's so much of the time we get caught up in. All right, is, is, that, an, is that a little clear? Is that, or is it clear as mud? Yes, I'm just saying... You don't need to, because Jesus' focus is on internalizing your faith. And so, here's the thing to keep in mind. Jesus knows Nicodemus' heart. He knows the mind of every man. He already told us that in verse 23, 24, and 25 of chapter 2, right before we jump into chapter 3. And so, the Jews were expecting the kingdom of God by a conquering Messiah. Nicodemus wanted to know more about the Messianic reign We already outlined for you what he probably already knows, but what he doesn't know is how to be prepared for the kingdom. And so Jesus says to him, and look at these words now. Jesus says to him, listen, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. I choose not to think that he has an epiphany here. And Nicodemus is thinking about the sinful nature at this point. I think Nicodemus is still wondering how all of this can happen in a physical way. But Jesus says, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then he gives the illustration of the Holy Spirit here. The wind blows where it wishes, and you can hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes and from where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the sovereign work of God, and let's just leave it there at that. Because look what happens next. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? I still don't get it. And Jesus looks at him in verse 10 and says,